So what I want to do as we get started, yes, we are studying through the book of Genesis, um, and we're going to dig into that in a, into, in a moment. I, I do want to read a little bit of the beginning, but the reality is some of us uh, pastors were even talking this week, and when it comes to Genesis, specifically Genesis 1, even as you begin to read it, there is this sense of you can't just read it. Um, because if you sink in, and you can even see most um, uh, English Bibles, a lot of the times uh, Genesis 1 is italicized, or it's, it's broken up, and you can see there's a particular cadence, there is a structure to it that's not prose, if you will. There's a rhythm, uh, there's a cadence, and so I just want to read a little bit so you can pick up on there's specifically the way in which it was written in Hebrew. There are uh, words that are repeated, there are phrases that are repeated, it's doing something. So I want to read a little bit, but then the reality is we need to experience it more. So then we're going to... Um, listen to a song slash watch a video that will kind of drag us into, I would hope, the awe and wonder of creation. But it, it sounds a little bit like this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, some rhythm. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, then God said. And throughout this, we hear, and God said, it was good. Each day as we walk in, it was good. It was good. And you get to the end of chapter 1, and in fact, indeed, it said it was very good. There is a rhythm, there is a cadence, there is a poetic unfolding of this story. And so it's not just something to be heard, it's something to be experienced. So uh, I want to have us immerse in that for a moment, and then we're going to start studying. So we're going to sink in and study chapter one of Genesis this morning. Fleshed out the wonder of life And as you speak A hundred billion galaxies are born 
down my heart through all of my failure and pride on a hill you created 
light of the world abandoned in darkness to die and as you speak a hundred billion failures disappear well you lost your life so I could find it Gracious God, we bless you for the gift of life, the gift of your love, your grace, your mercy, your invitation to know you, to love you in return, to walk with you in this gift called life. May our hearts be open now. May our minds be open now. May we spend time dancing with you as we unpack uh, the scriptures. Father God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation and posture of my heart now bring honor and glory to you and you alone, our Lord, our rock, and our Savior. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. And the church said, amen, amen, amen. Uh, I hope that stirred something in you, uh, rattled you kind of in your heart because it's an experience. That's what this is about. So uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 1. So uh, if you want to turn uh, in your Bibles, if you have them, we'll have stuff on screen, but you can uh, turn past uh, the page that's an introduction in your Bibles, and then there's probably a letter from the editing team or whatever translation you have, and then the next page is likely Genesis one. And so we're going to begin there. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and um, I have to say, uh, you might know um, if you've been around a little bit, but what I'm going to do is I worked hard to try and make this, uh, as we walk through this teaching, in sections. And so I'm going to ask questions, and they are not rhetorical. 
So I want to make sure as we move from movement to movement within the teaching that we're tracking as best we can. So if I say, how are we doing? If I ask, uh, if does anyone have questions of this last section? We're going to take time and you, you, yes, I have a question. What in the world are you talking about? Whatever it may be, could you please say more about this? Or we're good, fine, nod, cheer, jump up and down, however that may be, but it's not rhetorical. This is meant to be a conversation. This is meant for us to walk out together. So this is not a monologue. We don't want to do that. Um, for me, part of the challenge sometimes is getting up and teaching is I might be talking about something that has been within me, that I have spent lots of time with, maybe years with, and then to get up and talk about, I might go 100 miles per hour because it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And someone might be sitting there going, excuse me? And I, I don't want to run by it, and I don't want to sprint along. Because a lot of what we're going to be in, uh, in 2008, I sat in a teaching, and it was an hour and five minute teaching, and when it was done, thousands of people that were at this thing were like, seriously, we're done already? Kind of a feeling, but there were oohs and ahs. There were people audibly reacting to whoa, and for me, when it was done, my heart gave a standing ovation, and it screamed, I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was more. I knew that something bigger, wider, broader, deeper is going on. And so in 2008, it sent me into, oh, I need to dig in deeper. I need to study more. And I began to immerse myself in uh, better understanding the context of the text. And so what that did is it radically transformed the way that I study, read my Bible. It was a big deal and it was an experience. It wasn't something that I heard, it was something that I experienced and my hope is that we participate in something like that. Um, within this though, the teaching that was given in many ways was simple because it was kind of zooming out and saying let's ask questions of the text which are really kind of right there on the surface but we miss them because we have already heard that explained to us. This is how to read it or, or we just, I've, I've read, I mean, when I say in the beginning God began, some of us might go, yeah, I know I've heard that a thousand times. And so we're like, I, I know how this goes kind of a thing. And we don't ask questions that the text is begging us to ask. So we're going to do some of that because um, it's, it's really, really important. My, my hope is um, that we will all understand first and foremost, here's my thing, how we read the Bible matters. How we approach the text matters. So my hope is we will live both hungry for and open to the transcendent and intimate wisdom and wonder of the divine. In many ways, this teaching, um, it, uh, it, it helped me, what I experienced, rediscover the beginner's mind to read and study anew, to ask the basic questions that are kind of staring at us in the face. Um, but we were given some answers when we were in Sunday school, and they've held, and we just stick with it. And so then when we're reading, we're like, yeah, 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 I know I was given that when I was in Eager Beavers at seven years old. Uh, well, there's maybe more to it, because the scriptures rarely play by our modern rules. 
more often the scripture functions as a disruptor to the status quo. So this is why I'm excited to sink into the first book of the Bible, uh, the first book of the Hebrew scriptures we call Genesis. I hope you will take time to read along and read the whole book as we're doing this. Read the book of Genesis as we're doing it. And then I want to hopefully create space for us in our time together so that we can wrestle with this together. Does that sound good? Come on. Now, Genesis begins. Now, I'm going to break it up in sections, but I know we're going to go. Please take notes if you can or if you want or have the person next to you. You write it down and I'll talk with you later. Great, great, great. Genesis begins an ancient story compiled by the ancient Hebrew people. That's not a small detail. We, what we call the Bible begins with and center, centered on the story of the Israelite people. So the ways and practices of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors and enemies help shape the context in which the story unfolds. On top of that, some rather basic and simple observations need to be named. And although they are basic and simple, we tend to situate ourselves around them. We don't situate ourselves around them because it's not common for the Western American church and the modern church to ask these questions or to wrestle with this. For example, the Bible was not written to us. I know it's simple, but the Bible was not written to us. We can say that it was written for us, but that is vastly different than written to us. Many people begin or only read the Bible with the question, what does this mean for me? Which you can get there, but that should be probably question 15 as we trek down the line. There, there was an original audience, original community that it was written to. So we're going to read a little bit, and then we're going to wade in some observations. Good? Yes. All right, here we go. Uh, we'll throw it up on screen. First five verses. When God began to create, already we got to hang on to that, the heavens and the earth. The earth was complete, what? Chaos, key word, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was what? Come on. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That right there is an entire teaching series. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, I've got so, some Hebrew words circled in there that we might not get to. Maybe we will that. But that's a big deal. That would shape already how we read this text and how we understand it. Genesis opens with the Hebrew word Bereshit. Go ahead and say Bereshit. Bereshit. Now, that we translate as beginning. The word is followed by the word Elohim. Go ahead and say Elohim. Elohim we translate as God. And then that's followed by the Hebrew word Bara. Go ahead and say Bara. 
Bara, we translate it as create, but here's the thing. It's only used uh, a, a few times in the Hebrew scriptures, and bara is only used of God doing. God does bara. So that's how it's used. But then when we translate it, the Hebrew reads, when God began to create. That's how it is translated. So this is a story about beginnings, raising rather significant questions for us Western readers who have been taught to read and understand every word of the Bible literally, oftentimes, rather than literarily. There is a style, there is a actual, the, the language that it was in, the style, the genre, if you will, that it was written in, actually asks different things of us. So when we're taught to read it literally, there are things that are gonna be very problematic very quickly. What kind of literature is this, Genesis 1? How does the context, structure, and style of this ancient Near Eastern literature lead us to read and understand Genesis? Is this meant to be read literally? How are we to approach this book? It begins with chaos that is formless and empty. These are the words that it means, formless and empty. With darkness covering the face of the deep, which we should, it raises the question, is the deep different than water. Notice those were different things. Does that matter? How is there light? Anyone else think this? How is there light? And then evening and morning before the sun and moon are created. Sun and moon are not created until day four, yet somehow we're saying there was light, so is light different than sun and the moon? And, yeah. and all of this comes into being by way of this God speaking. Is that an important detail? Just those questions alone might lead some people to go, do I really want to wade into this crazy old story? Because what does this have to do with my life today? And here's what I would say. In light of the intense division in our society, the increased bashing and crushing of people via social media, and the paradox within the amount of resources we hold and have access to in our country, yet we are the most depressed and stressed people on the planet, I think this ancient story could not be more relevant for us today. And if you are asking really how, well, then giddy up. We'll sink in. As I said last week, what is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses, which we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these come into form, and this is really important, as we know it, as we have it, that took form, it didn't happen until after 539 BCE, before Common Era, BC, after that time. It was not written from scratch at that time, but it was, it was uh, brought together, compiled through what they had in some written stuff, and a lot of oral um, oral traditions and oral 
stories that were collected. That's how they took it. So we don't view this work as one person telling a story. Rather, it should be seen as a remix that has selected pieces put together in a fresh way to tell one story. The timeline of after 539 BCE is really important because it was in 586 BCE that the Babylonians, the global military superpower at that time, marched into Jerusalem, bulldozed the Hebrew people's temple, which is the house of their god. Then much of their population was taken captive and brought to Babylon, which is known as the Great Exile. And in 586 B.C., the people of Israel then looked around. Imagine you're these people. They looked around. They have no land now. They have no king, and they have no temple, which for them would raise the question, no land, no king, no temple. Who are we? Who are we? That's the question they're asking. So in clear terms, what we have here is not an ancient journalist having an eyewitness experience and writing it all down, assembling it so that we have historical facts. Because, of course, the point is not to argue with religious people that religious people hold all the facts. Nope. When I say it's not about recording perfectly all the facts, that is different than whether or not this story is true. Those are different things. Are you with me? And when I say um, that truth is far more the point, and when they're telling the story, the goal is truth. Yes, the ancient Hebrew people have real questions of God, though, in light of this very raw exile to Babylon. They're in exile, and they have questions. Did God break the divine promise and abandon us? It's here in exile, under the boot of empire of Babylon, that the Hebrew people start doing some soul-searching. They begin to recall, and now what they're going to do in Babylon is collect their history in light of the national tragedy that has befallen them. And they're asking, does God still care for us, and are we still God's people? How can they make sure, and this is a big point, they're collecting this and they're asking, how can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? That's a big deal. So they organized the story that many call the Old Testament, which is better understood as the Hebrew Scriptures. So I would say it like this. Think of this as Israel's story written in light of national trauma to encourage continued faithfulness to their God who they know as Yahweh. This is Israel's story. So they begin by telling the story with swirling chaos, but then their God begins to speak light into the darkness. And that brings us to verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's fascinating. This God pronounces life, beauty, and order over the chaos. This God is an artist, not a barbaric deity. Contextually, this is a big deal. In just a few words, we catch a massive subversion of the dominant belief system of the ancient world. 
So, before we wade into the next movement, anyone have any questions? Clarifications. Otherwise, we're going to go to our next kind of movement within this. All right? We'll go. We'll have lots of time for this. Uh, about the time, because here we go, about the time of Hammurabi, now 1700 BCE, the people of Babylon begin to construct the following story about the creation of the cosmos. 1700 BCE, by the way, would be earlier, understood earlier than the time that we would know of Genesis. The name of this creation story is called the Enuma Elish. Go ahead and say Enuma Elish. Now here's the thing. It comes from the first two words of the poem, which mean when on high. Sound familiar? Genesis, the, the word we get, comes from the beginning of that poem. Well, interesting, the Enuma Elish does the same. When on high. The story explains how the Babylonian gods came to rule over the Sumerian gods, Sumerian gods, but this, of course, is how the Babylon, Babylonians told it. The Sumerians have a different version of the creation story. And how we have come to better learn this ancient story of the Enuma Elish is a relatively new discovery. They found seven tablets, the seven tablets that tell the story. They were recovered by English archaeologist Austin Henry Laird in 1849. They were found in fragmentary form, and they were able to put them together. We have some pictures. Uh, so these are the, the tablets that they found in replicas. They found these seven tablets, and we were able to put together this creation story, which they had already had pieces of, and now they're like, now we can put it together. The, uh, he found it in the ruined library of Ashurbanipal at Nineveh, which is in Mosul, Iraq. This provided scholars the ability to piece together, literally, this ancient creation story. So what we're going to do is I want us to read my brief but thorough summary of the Enuma Elish. Uh, some different pictures. These tablets that they found, uh, this last picture I wanted to show you so you get the idea because this helped us understand when we think of the Ten Commandments what the tablets would look like, what these clay tablets would look like. And how many of you, because we saw um, uh, Charlton Heston, Moses, right? And we watched this thing and he's got these, and you're like, wow, he's really strong to carry these big giant things. Uh, real quick, last picture. Uh, it's next to a ruler. Do you see how big it is? We're in centimeters. By the way, these tablets in which they have the entire story on were little. So less than Moses doing this is probably Moses doing this. Uh, <laughs> there's small tablets in which they're writing on. Just fun, but it's fascinating. When they find them, they go, oh, okay, this is how they did things. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Now, ready? Here we go. The Enuma Elish begins when the earth and sky are without names. Now, within that, think of the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. We'll just start that way. 
Apsu, the first godfather, and Tiamat, the first godmother, who is also known as Chaos, mix their waters together, so that we're PG, to create a second generation of gods. This is how the story is told. Ea and his brothers. But these young gods make so much noise playing that Apsu wants to kill them. This is the story. This is how it's told. Now, you have to remember, at this point, I think this is why we built houses. Just so we could say, kids, you need to go outside and play and make noise. But here, they, they don't. So the, this is how their story is told. They, these young gods make noise. Apsu wants to kill them. So Tiamat warns her son Ea of the danger, and then Ea kills Apsu instead. Apsu. So Ea becomes the new chief god. With his wife, Damkina, Ea has a son, Marduk, the third generation of the gods. Ea and Damkina give young Marduk the wind to play with, but he uses the wind to make tornadoes and dust storms, disturbing his grandmother Tiamat, who's made of the earth and the sky and the land, if you will. So she is understood as the earth and sky, so Marduk turns his grandmother's body into dust storms. Quite a twist in the story is what I wrote. <laughs> That's just me having some fun. You got to when you're writing these things down. Uh, this is my note. So younger gods, still inside Tiamat's body, convince Tiamat to take revenge for Ea killing her husband, Apsu. Tiamat, with her new husband, Kingu, create monsters, think the Greek titans, to help her and a great war starts. But in the end, Tiamat loses Marduk becomes the new king of the gods. Marduk fillets Tiamat's body into two halves and with one half creates the sky and with the other half creates land or the earth. And out of Kingu's blood, Marduk makes humans, makes humanity. By slaying the watery chaos and making the habitable, habitable wor world, Marduk was acknowledged as the high god, the god above all gods. This is how many of the ancient creation stories were told, with a cosmic battle between warring gods and the creation of the cosmos going to the winning gods. And then humanity was created and then enslaved to do the bidding of these angry, violent gods. So, I would say it like this. Other creation stories have humanity as kind of a burden. Genesis speaks of humanity as a blessing. This is a brand new story in the history of the world. Everyone would go, wait a minute, what is this story doing? This is so very different. Babylonian people told their story every year at the great festival of the new year in the springtime when they believed the world started anew every single year. Now, as mentioned, when the Hebrew people are constructing what we know as Genesis, it is while they are in exile under the boot of the Babylonian empire. That's when they're constructing this. So hopefully you noticed in the, uh, the Enuma Elish, in their creation story, that there are some things that Genesis sounds similar, correct? And then there's some significant differences. 
Hopefully you picked up that the Enuma Elish sounds a bit like a soap opera or maybe the, like the original idea for the Jerry Springer show with these warring gods, right? That's what's just going on. But, and there are many gods, which is, again, the common thing. In the Genesis account, there is one God, and this God is benevolent. It's a brand new story. The creation story we find in Genesis 1 has some similarities to the Babylonian creation story and some significant differences. In Genesis 1, the creator God acts as more of an artist, creating with love and passion, calling the divine artwork over and over, it is good, it is good. And in the Genesis creation account, humanity is empowered to steward and guide creation forward. So this God doesn't enslave humanity. Rather, this God creates humanity and says it's good and then endows humanity with the ability to be fruitful and multiply. The Genesis story is one of harmony, creating peace out of and over chaos. The divine poetically speaks creation into being and then says over and over, it is good. Now, the Hebrew word for good is a really important word for seeing how this story moves forward. That Hebrew word is the word tov. Go ahead and say tov. Tov. Now, here's the thing that's important. We tend to think of good, we hear good, as fine. Right? Our, our idea of good is, it's fine, it's at least not bad, but tov in the Hebrew carries the funda- fundamental meaning of becoming. It's a generative word, which is to say, this, this thing, whatever it is that is good, is becoming, it means it's just getting started. Really important. Can you see how that fits in the Genesis account? God created and said it's good, it's, it's becoming, it's just getting started, it's going to become more, it's endowed with something that's going to keep going. You see how that's a big deal? Are you tracking? Good. So this Genesis God is life-giving in the context of all these other gods who are life taking. Other gods enslave humanity. This God creates and liberates humanity, unleashing humanity to keep becoming all that they were created to become. This is how the story begins. It is all tov. It's good. This is the Christian story. And so my question is, is this how you've heard the story? Have you heard or experienced this buoyant and beautiful story like this? If not, then welcome home. Welcome to the beginning, to beginning the story with Tov. The story starts with good, good, good. Do you see how we read the Bible and how we tell the story of the Bible matters? How we do this matters because it begins with Tove. It is good. Okay, before we go, we got our next movement. We're cruising along, actually. Any questions? 
Uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but the Enuma Elish, new for people? Uh, many creation stories, new for people? I know, understand, in, in the church you might go, there's a creation story. Mm -mm, well, there's actually all kinds of them. One lasted, one holds, one continues to move about, others were literally buried in the dirt. Now, what we find in the first two chapters of Genesis is far more than just creation. They also provide a summary, and this is a big deal, of Israel's story. I know we read it and we think creation, but it's also a summary of Israel's story. Ready? If you're taking notes, Adam is created out of the dust and then placed in a lush plot of land called the Garden of Eden, known as paradise. God's dwelling place. God's one rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ready? So, obey and you dwell with God in paradise. Disobey and you will experience death and then exile. Okay? It, I would summarize this. Obey and you stay disobey and experience exile. That is how the beginning begins, but here's the thing. Israel's story follows that pattern. So listen to this. God delivers the Israelites from slavery, creating a nation out of the dust of Egypt. Then God places Israel in a lush land, Canaan, also known as the promised land or paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey. God gives them basic instructions, we often call the Ten Commandments, the invitation to the Israelite people now in becoming a nation is this, obey and you stay, disobey and be exiled. Sound familiar? The birth of the Israelite nation happens in the midst of warring gods. What we'll learn as in Genesis 2, we're going to get into this next week, in the beginning in Genesis 1, it just says God. In the English, it speaks of God creating. In Genesis 2, it's going to sw switch to the Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim. We'll talk about what that means, though. But here's the thing. You have Yahweh Elohim in Genesis 2, and then what you're going to have is this Yahweh Elohim will be versus Pharaoh's God of Egypt when, we get, when you get into that in the Exodus story. In this war is depicted as what we know as the ten plagues, right? We go, oh, yeah, those plagues. Here's the thing. Each one of those plagues actually functions as a symbol to the ancient Egyptian gods or the Near Eastern gods. They're not random because you're like, what's the deal with water turning into blood? And why frogs? Well, because there was a god that actually had a frog head. And, so, and I, I mean, that, like, that's depicted in certain ways. Each one of the plagues is actually a symbol of an ancient god. So it's actually telling us a story of this one god versus all these other gods. And this god continues to be more powerful. 
So how does this uh, story unfold? He, Israel's enslaved in Egypt and they're rescued and brought into uh, safety, into freedom. How? By waters being under the sky being separated, chaos being separated, right? Split into two, we call the parting of the Red Sea, to reveal what? The dry ground below, which is a replay of Genesis 1. Are you with me? Then the God who tamed chaos to create uh, the cosmos in the beginning also tamed Pharaoh and his God to create Israel, God's people. All right, got that. Are we ready for our next thing here before we go to our next movement? Questions? Comments? Uh, the question is, uh, obey and you stay, how do we keep that from being like prosperity? Uh, because our idea of almost like a reward system, we think of that, ooh, obey and I'll give you a treat. Uh, when it was rather understood, this idea of you all have been enslaved for hundreds of years, you do not understand what it means like to live in community. You have no idea how to do this. You wake up and you make bricks for someone else. That's all you do. You don't have to actually live in community. Now we're going to create a community out of you. Let me give you basic instructions on how to be human with one another and how to do life with one another. If you do that, there is harmony. If you do that, I dwell with you and we become one. If you don't do that and you are selfish, greedy, if you want to do your own thing, whatever it may be, if you choose uh, self-gratification would be the scripture's use of it, then we're going to have to exile you. We're going to have to give you a timeout because you are not functioning well together. And God says, I need to move in this direction. I'm not doing that because I'm mean. Uh, parents, we know this. I'm doing this because uh, I would like this house to stay together. And I don't want you clawing each other's eyes out. So there is not this, hey, do this and I'll give you lots of stuff. But do this and we can continue becoming all that you were created to be in community with one another. Thank you. That's a phenomenal question. Good, 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 good. Um, okay. Any others? It's great. Helpful. Uh, now, our next big movement, as the new, or I would say the Second Testament, what we know, opens, here's the things, that the, the language we get. Four, after 430 years in exile, that number, by the way, aligns with the number given of how long they were enslaved in Egypt and then wandered the desert, Right? Before they become a nation, like step in and then they come into the promised land and become a nation, essentially are reborn or born into a people now, we have 430 years and then this second testament opens with what? The birth of a son known as God's son. In Israel, how is Israel referred to in the Hebrew scriptures? As God's son. Right, so this is how it is open. A baby is born, in other words, God acts. He speaks into what is chaos. 
And then we move to Jesus' baptism story where it says, uh, we'll put it up on screen, I think, uh, and when Jesus had been baptized, listen to the language, just as he what? He came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were open to him, and he saw God's spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. Matthew here is saying, please pay attention. You should be thinking about Genesis 1 when you see this picture. He, the, the son coming up, out, the, the son Jesus, Jesus coming up out of the chaos and the dove alighting on him. And oh, by the way, the language of dove there, the word is flutter above. It's flutter. And in the Hebrew, in the Genesis 1, they're the same word. What does it look like for spirit to hover above the chaos? What we have here is a picture of spirit hovering above Jesus as he's coming up out of the chaotic waters. It's a picture. It's a picture of what's going on here. So this story echoes Genesis 1, spirit hovering. Jesus is anointed to bring order out of chaos, mirroring mirroring his people's creation account. I'm going to fulfill, I'm going to step into, I'm going to do what was begun so long ago, okay? These stories, and you will find, are consistently about God creating harmony, peace, and goodness out of chaos. God enters the chaos and creates and then says, ah, this is tov, it's good, Rescue from slavery and exile. This God is good and this God rescued, rescues, this God saves is how it is. And oh, by the way, the, the name Jesus means God saves. That's what this God is doing. I would call this good news. And oh, by the way, I need this. How about you? Does anyone need the God who creates goodness, peace, harmony out of chaos, anyone. Uh, The first time I went to Israel, uh, I had a ring made that said Shalom Tohu, which is peace out of the chaos. And I got home, and the first week that I was back in the States, I went to uh, one of my son's little uh, class parties, and it was at a, a swimming pool thing, and we had to put our stuff in the locker room, and my ring got stolen a week after I got back out of my locker. They stole my socks, my drawers, and my ring. And I had to sit there, and oh man, I was mad. I was mad, but then I also thought, someone took a ring that says peace out of chaos. How interesting. Then, uh, this past May, when I was in Israel, I got a new ring that says peace. In Hebrew, peace over the chaos. Yeah, yeah, because that's the story. That's our story. That's the movement of this story. Redemption, I'll take it. Um, I would say this, for us then, we're reflecting already, uh, there does not exist a chaos that is too big or too ugly for God to conquer and create good out of. Your mess, no matter the size, is not too big for God. There doesn't exist a slavery that we can find ourselves in that God can't rescue us from. This is God's story. Are you with me? Do you see when I say this matters for how we live today? There is something deeper, bigger, more going on and it ought to reverberate within the depths of who we are. 
Hooey. Okay, how are we doing? Okay. The story then continues by God calling this rescued people. We're almost done. Uh, people to step into the world. Whew. So these rescued people are now invited to step into the world, into other people's chaos, inviting them to embrace the God who saves, the God who rescues, the God who creates beauty out of chaos because this God makes beautiful things and says it is all good. Okay, that's that's. A picture of Genesis 1, hopefully. That was that. Now what I want to do is go to some people that are far smarter than me, and I just want to do a summary real quick. So what we're going to look at, uh, there's a, a really helpful book. It's called Genesis for Normal People. So I read uh, commentaries and stuff like that. It might be for nerds, and you go, oh, this is really good. Then there's a book uh, put, put together by these scholars, but they wanted to call it Genesis for Normal People. So how can we explain this for people who aren't, like crazy bald Wally, um, sort of. So um, they say this. Uh, I think this is really important. I think, I think I have this, yeah. Genesis is an ancient story. Depending on our past exposure to the Bible, some of us might approach Genesis expecting to find a detailed account of history as though it's a modern textbook. But Genesis is not a textbook, history, science, or otherwise. Let the teenager in us rejoice. <laughs> Instead of a textbook, some of us might approach Genesis as a book of principles to teach us how to live. But if we approach a story like a book of principles, it is likely we will find ourselves wanting to know what every passage means for me. Imagine trying to watch a riveting blockbuster movie or a moving drama while pausing at every five minutes to ponder, how does, that scene, how does that scene apply to my life? Stories do apply to our lives, perhaps more than any other form of literature, but not as abstract principles or proverbs. They apply when our personal story collides with them, when we get lost in the world they present to us. So when we read Genesis as an ancient story written at a particular time to a particular people, it opens up possibilities and worlds we don't encounter in our limited existence. When we stop using Genesis as an argument, a textbook, or a code of conduct, and begin to see it as an ancient story with memorable characters, twists and turns, ups and downs, accomplishments and mistakes, we find it fresh, deep, and more true and relevant than we might expect. I love that right there just to stop and you go, I think when we immerse ourselves in it, we find more truth, not less. Okay. The best stories shape our lives precisely because as we read them, we are presented with both reality and possibility. The characters and circumstances resonate with us because they are mirrors of our own story, reminding us that we are not alone in our experiences, but they also pull us toward another world that we are less familiar with, familiar with, a world that is often strange and sometimes dangerous, a world that doesn't show me what is, but rather what is possible. Why would we expect anything less at the beginning of the story of God's relationship with humanity? 
But in order to see Genesis through ancient eyes, we have to admit that our modern eyes might get in the way. The original context helps us suspend our 21st century gaze and allow us to enter a new way of looking at the world. Peter Enns, Jared Bias, The Bible for Normal People. It's a really thin book, but it is really helpful. Now, real quick, what I want to do is they give a fantastic analogy. I had a bunch of analogies and go, mm, they do it better. So, as an analogy... Think of the American Declaration of Independence. This document established America's national identity and was written at a time of crisis to oppose their British oppressors. If you didn't know that background, it would be difficult to understand why the Declaration of Independence sounds like it does. Imagine an archaeologist unearthing the Declaration of Independence 5,000 years from now without knowing anything about America and its fight for independence. Without a working knowledge of what the colonists were opposing, the words of their declaration lose a lot of their force. In the same way, when we see that the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Israel's constitution, is partly written as a theological response to Babylonian captivity, some important pieces then fall into place. Are you with me? You see how helpful that can be. That's immensely helpful when confronted with the question and rather static argument of a literal Genesis 1. How also we can address this, uh, some of you may know the name Ray Vanderlaan, Bible teacher for many years, led trips to Israel and Turkey and around the world, Bible study trips for years and years and years, and just recently retired leading trips to Israel. Well, he has this fantastic story of how he went to a rabbi and he asked the rabbi, do you think the world was created in several, seven literal days? And the rabbi responded with, huh, I never thought about that. And then he went on to say, it's not that I had not heard that, but I've never thought about that because I understand the Hebrew, the poetic nature, the style, the structure, the genre, that's not the questions we are talking about. That's not what this thing is trying to tell us. This isn't about how creation was put together. It's trying to tell us who this God is and what this God is like. Are you with me? And Ray was like, could you say that really loudly? And in fact, I'll give you a microphone that goes throughout the world. Oh. Now, one final nugget, which I hope functions as an invitation to see how this impacts us more and more and how we live and move and have our being today. What we see in this story is that God tamed the chaos. Genesis is Israel's story about who is responsible for taming the chaos. And how does this God tame the chaos? First, where it says there is no form, God will make habitable space, ordered space. 
Then where there is emptiness, God will fill it. So real quick, when it said in the beginning there, uh, God created and it said there was chaos, the Hebrew phrase and its intention, it's going to sound fun. That's how Hebrew is so that you remember it. The chaos or wild and waste or formless and empty, depending your translation, is tohu vavohu. Ready? Tohu. Va, vohu. Wild and waste. Formless and empty. Chaos. So that's how it is. So you read it and it would say tohu vavohu. There is this wild and waste. There is this emptiness formlessness and emptiness. Now ready? Here we go. In days one through three, God creates space. In days four through six, God fills the space. There was a formlessness. God says, all right, there's this chaos. Let's order it. Oh, and now what we're going to do is spend the next bit filling it with things that I would say are good. So, hypothetically, let me give you an analogy. Imagine the dining table begins to collect the kids' lunch boxes from after school. Maybe mail gets tossed on it. Homework is strewn about. A ball from the garage is set down and left. And then the household begins to grumble for dinner. First, the table needs to be organized with the collected chaos to be made into habitable space for filling the table with plates, bowls, and food, correct? Welcome to Genesis 1. Are you with me? The first days of creation are not bent on telling us how the universe was created out of nothing. Instead, these six days display the creative act of Israel's God in a purposeful crafting of chaos into a place of order. So let's look at the first two verses again. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos, tohu vavohu, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind, the Hebrew word there is ruach, could be spirit, because it's wind, it's breath, it's spirit. That Hebrew word ruach means wind, it means breath, and it means spirit, all of them. So this wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now here's the thing, the first two verses introduce tohu vavohu, and the rest of the chapter, first two verses introduce the rest of chapter one is an answer to the chaos problems. Oh, we should address that. A good example for not treating this ancient poem-style literature as a textbook, ready, is when God separates the light from the dark on day one. But the sun, moon, and stars are not created until day four. And guess what? Us modern people, what do we know? The moon doesn't give off light, does it? It reflects light. Already are you going, wait a minute. And it says, ready, there was evening and there was morning. That word evening in the Hebrew is erev, and it means sunset. And there was morning, bocher, means break of dawn, the first day. 
So on the first day, there is a sunset and there is the break of dawn, sunrise, before the sun was created. Unless, of course, that's not, even in the Hebrew language, saying, if that's what you're hung up on, you've missed the point. <laughs> it's right in the Hebrew language, which is why the rabbi said, huh? Never really thought about that. It's as if the Torah writers are putting this whole thing together, together several thousand years ago as an ancient Near Eastern poetic writing style and not treating it like a science textbook or literal history book. Rather, it is a poetic retelling of an ancient people's story to help us to discover the truth that is far wider and deeper, that is transcendent yet wildly personal and intimate all at the same time. In Genesis 1, we begin with chaos, and by the time we get to the end of Genesis 1, we have sky, land, and sea, and all the things that fill those places and spaces. Chaos is ordered, and the cosmos is filled. It's brilliant. Now, I want to give you this one big takeaway, I would say is a big takeaway from chapter 1. It's a rather, and here's the thing, it's a rather large, subversive jab at all the neighboring gods, and a really big one at their most significant in, uh, enemy at the time, Babylon, where they sit in exile as they're compiling this. In the ancient world, kings and gods would put images of themselves in remote parts of their kingdom so the subjects would know they were still present even if they were physically distant. In Genesis 1, all humans are endowed with the image of the divine, and they all carry this royal status. They don't have to wonder, wait for, or search out the location of God because God's presence is within them. <sighs> Brand new in the history of telling creation stories. Hold on to that nugget because it's going to come in really handy when we get to Genesis 3 and we read the question, where are you? And that question isn't posed to God, it's posed to who? Humanity. Because where God is isn't the question, where are you is the question. Whew. This is the story of the divine. This is the story of the church. Organized out of chaos, called to partner with the divine to restore, renew, and reconcile good out of chaos. Because creation and this divine relationship was first and foremost and understood as good. In fact, it is tov meod. It is very good. So uh, last thing, I'll just put up, how you read the Bible matters. Are we picking that up then? How does the story begin? God saw everything, the last verse, God saw everything that he made and indeed it was very good. So in response, what I thought we would do is step back into what we experienced before we 
got talking. And so I want to create some space for us to sing in response because it feels like the appropriate response would be poetry, would be art, would be music, and that we would respond in song. Uh, before we do that, before we step into that, I, I want to pray, but I also want to ask one more time, is there any other questions or thoughts uh, in terms of all of that? Which was a little bit, I know. All clear, because next week I'm going to actually sit down and you all are getting up here and you're going to have to organize how you're retelling all of that. But you, you guys will figure that out during the week. Um, this was Genesis 1. Do you see diving into Genesis? We're going to have so much fun. I can't wait for next week. And then the week after that, goodness gracious, how much fun is that? So next week, Genesis 2. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be good, is what I expect. So, uh, gracious God, I bless you. God, we bless you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your invitation to us over and over and over again to walk with you, to be with you, to follow you in all this goodness God, you love us, created us out of love, and in creating us, it, 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 is a, it is just beginning. It's becoming. And we want to become who we were created to, to be in you, through you, with you, which we trust is good news. For our lives, but certainly for the surrounding world. So I bless you, God, for this, for meeting us right where we are, loving us as we are, but always with your love, your grace, your mercy, your truth, you're growing us up, you're moving us along. What a gift. May we take this moment, may this be an expression of our heart, our response, our yes to you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.